This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley Studio with your yes, hosts, sir. Ron and Chris. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again, along with a very special guest, Tracy Mayleaf, Information Security Analyst at New York Times. I know I'm excited to get to know more about your background. It sounds like you have a lot of interest, but first off, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, Tracy, you are awesome. When I first met you, I instantly liked you. So for everyone that doesn't know who you are, because half of the world seems to know you as InfoSec Sherpa, <laughs> but for those of you that don't know you yet, could you give us a little bit of your background and where you are today? Sure thing. Yeah, a lot of people know me as InfoSec Sherpa. So I'm, I go by Tracy or InfoSec Sherpa. I live in the Philadelphia area. And like I said, I am an information security analyst for the New York Times. But nothing that I'm discussing here today is representing my employer. It is representing myself. Uh, so what's my deal? I spent 15 years as a librarian, mostly in law firms. So I have a master's degree of library and information science. And I also have undergrad degrees in liberal arts. So I am proof that you can have a liberal arts background and still uh, go on to have a successful career in a you know tech security position. Uh, I, you know, I've had a variety of different jobs and careers over time. I was also a travel agent for most of my twenties, so I, I've definitely picked up on different skill sets along the way that very much apply to tech and security. And I just, you know, really, really like that a lot. I have given a talk uh, a couple times, but most famously was at DerbyCon called Empathy as a Service to Create a Culture of Security. And that's something that I try to tweet about a lot and to talk to people a lot of bringing library science skills into information security. It's called uh, Empathy as I, a Service. Yeah, Empathy. I was just trying to, you know, be clever with all the as a service things. <laughs> so I called it empathy as a service. And there's a, a principle of library science called a reference interview. And there's seven steps to it. And I use my talk to, to, I took the seven steps and I correlated them to things like incident response or just, you know, working on a help desk or just basically being part of a security team. And that's something that I feel very strongly about. And I've gotten some great, you know, really great feedback about it. If you ever follow me on social media, you know that I like to bake and knit. And so basically all these hobbies that now that people are quarantined have like all of a sudden experienced, I've been doing way before it was cool. Yep, you're <laughs> so, the vet. <laughs> so, You'll be yeah. doing uh, webinars by this weekend. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Like I, you know, people are like, oh, I baked a loaf of bread. And I'm like, I, yeah, yeah, yay, great. That's great. I'm not throwing right. shade on anybody, but no. I was like, where were all you? Like all these, all these hobbies, like things that I just did normally before. Now all of a sudden, everyone's like, oh, now I'm gonna bake and knit and stuff. I'm like, where, what were you doing before <laughs> to, <laughs> to fill yeah. your time? There are a bunch of people trying to hop into the podcast game now, so that's interesting. Oh my goodness, yeah, yeah that's another one too. Yeah, so. No, I mean, could, I, I would, I'm not throwing any, I don't want this to become all drama now. I'm not throwing any shade on anyone cooking no, or baking or 
anything. You know, there's always haters. I just want to add my <laughs> my clarification. No, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's great that everybody's ex- expanding their welcome. horizons, trying welcome different things. Welcome to the kitchen. Yes. yes. Welcome I, to the kitchen. Know. Welcome yeah. to knitting. Yes. Welcome to podcasting. Everything. Welcome yes. To everything. So, I understood coding better because of knitting. Whoa, and when I've ex- when I've explained that to people, it usually blows their minds. <laughs> okay, so, do, uh, do, do like, tell, yeah, do tell. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> no, that's that's it. That's the end of my story. <laughs> okay, so look at it. So I look at it this way. Okay, so if you've ever looked at a knitting pattern, it'll look it looks like it's coat basically. It's you know K one P two K three P three. Knit one, purl two is what that means. It means right. K is for knit, P is for purl, which is P-U-R-L. Like, and then there's other ones. There's, you know, there, there's a lot of other ones. But, you know, so first of all, when you get your knitting uh, patterns, it's a code that you have to read. But then when you're actually knitting, you know, when you're looking for errors, like you, a skilled knitter, I don't crochet, so I can't really speak for that yarn art, but for knitting, I mean, you can... You may not, you might not find an error until you're a couple rows down, much like coding. <laughs> and, you know, you have a choice. Do you go back and fix it? Or do you just keep knitting and risk that your scarf at some point is going to start to unravel from that error, which is also an analogy I use to explain O-Days to people. <laughs> oh, wow. That's yeah. a good one. You know, that, that stitch that you dropped in row four, after you finish that scarf, well, that may have been a load-bearing stitch, and <laughs> after, you know, and the scarf looks fine, and you wear it a couple times, but maybe through use, all of a sudden that hole starts to get bigger and bigger, and maybe start to unravel. And yeah, that's how I explain an O-Day using knitting. But yeah, the but the coding is I don't know something just clicked in my head having someone explain coding to me. This was a couple of years ago, and all of a sudden I was like that. Coding is just knitting. <laughs> it's just yeah. it's wow. just knitting. And I'm like, shoot, I can do this. And then I took an intro to Python course. And I don't know, in like, I don't know, a couple maybe 15 minutes into it, I just said out loud, all of a sudden I went, Oh, Python's Excel. <laughs> and the the instructor like stopped for a second and she was like, Oh my God. She's like, I never even thought of it that way. Cause she was like like more tech centric and was very much in like the coding mindset. And me coming from, this is why, you know, diversity of thought solves problems, where I'm looking at Python going, oh, I'm just creating little Excel cells for everything. Yeah. So, I mean, I I hope that's a good explanation. But, you know, yeah, knitting and coding really kind of came together in my brain because, you know, a line of code might look like gibberish to someone. But, you know, if, if you are, if you know that language, you know, you can understand what it says. And same for knitting. If you if you know how to read the knitting pattern, it doesn't look like, you know, darn, I was going to make a nerd reference and I'm not even good at that. Klingon, <laughs> Klingon, that's the word I was trying to think of. Right. It might look like Klingon to you, but I know exactly what that, you know, command means. But like I said, I like to also use it more for like the catching errors, you know, because a good knitter will be able to just look, I can look at a piece of fabric and identify what stitches pretty much were used or if there were errors and, and things like that. So, yeah. I think that's such a kind of a great analogy and the diversity and thought I think is so important in the workplace. Cause I think for me, like a lot of the analogies that I think 
a lot of my colleagues make, they don't necessarily apply. So I think like it's pretty crazy that you could look at knitting like coding and, you know, yeah. so many other things kind of just relate. And it's another way to to look at it and kind of explain or get people interested. I'm now I'm interested in knitting all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. I, excellent. It's a fun activity. And yeah, I mean, I've I've made now admittedly, I'm not super advanced. I mean, I can I can I can make you know, baby blankets, scarf, hats, you know, like nobody's business. What what I like to make that are super easy is uh, dishcloths. If you hmm. get, you can get cotton yarn and you can, there's really easy dishcloth patterns because they're also fairly small. So they're quick to make. And, you know, also you, the some of the patterns will act as uh, like good for scrubbing. Like it, because a pearl stitch will give you a bump. So if you have a bunch of pearl stitches, that kind of will act like an abrasive thing, but something that you can use on, say, Teflon, because it's in the end, it's just uh, patterned cotton <laughs> is what you're cleaning it so with. So you, you have knitting, library science, liberal <laughs> science, empathy as a service. How did how does OSINT, where does that fit in? <laughs> oh, okay. So my joke is, is that I was doing OSINT before I knew it was called OSINT. You know, as a librarian, you know, that's what I was trained to do was to find information. You know, what I, I what I call library school, it's my master's degree for library information science. I have this one class and I can't remember the name of it, but our entire semester was nothing but we had to document. We were given a, a question to answer. We were, you know, we were given what basically looked like trivia questions. And we were given all these trivia questions all the time. And our the class part was we had to document our research steps. So it didn't, you know, the if we got the right answer, it didn't really, like, like I could have just answered the questions as if it was trivia. <laughs> I was like, well, no, you need to find the information. And it was just, it was more like a math problem, is we had to show our work of how we found the answer. And there were, you know, right and wrong ways or, you know, and and things like that to answer some questions. So that's what, you know, a lot of librarians do is, is that OSINT. So when I made my career transition, I kept hearing the term OSINT or seeing the term OSINT and I immediately, okay, so everyone's going to laugh and I'll admit this. I first thought that it was a programming language, you know, because you know how like COBOL <laughs> and BASIC right. and everything are in all caps. Well, I kept seeing OSINT in all caps and thinking, is that a programming language? So you know, I swallowed my pride. It's you know, a lot of people have a problem admitting if they don't know something and you need to like get over that. But I didn't want to like broadcast it publicly. So I just I I asked someone who had, you know, been very nice to me and welcomed me into the InfoSec world. And I, you know, sent him or no, I think I called him and I said, I have a question. I said, What is this OSINT that I keep seeing? And he kind of laughed and he's like, You know what it is. I'm like, No, I really don't. And he's like, He's like, Tracy, you, you've been doing OSIN. He's like, from what you've told me, what you did as a librarian, you've been doing OSIN for a long time. And all of a sudden, like, I think for a minute, I'm like, no way. I'm like, that's OSIN. <laughs> and he just laughed and he was like, well, what did you call it? And I said, doing my damn job. Like, that, you know, we didn't have a name for it. It was just doing our job. So I then go forth and explain that to librarians when I have the privilege of speaking with librarian groups. I'm like, hey, guess what? 
other people call what we do this. <laughs> so if you want to change careers, put that on your screen. So yeah, it was basically just, you know, 15 years. Well, and also keep in mind, I was a travel agent. So I also had to do, you know, research and, and things like that. I wouldn't say it, it wasn't necessarily open source, but I've always had some sort of research aspect in my career. So that's, yeah, once I knew that it was called OSINT, I was like, oh, I know how to do this. So I've tried to bring my ex expertise from my other career into our world here by giving talks um, like at Layer 8 in Rhode Island last year. I gave a talk called Lawyers, Guns, and Money, an introduction to uh, legal, government, and business research, because I discovered that a lot of people in InfoSec weren't aware of all the other OSIN opportunities out there in business publications, government publications, legal publications, things, things like that. Yeah, so it sounds like you have mastered the art of the pivot. You've pivoted <laughs> to so many different things. And so one thing that I wanted to ask you is what are some of the basics of library science? Some people have just heard of library science in this podcast. So what are some of the basics of library science and how have you used that in order to build your career in cybersecurity? Well, well, how much time do we have? I'll start with some fundamentals. I mean, okay, how can I explain this? So, you know, librarianship is a service industry job, basically. You know, you're serving the needs of of a community because there's different types of libraries. Let's start there, actually. You know, when I... When I told people that I was a librarian, there's a lot of people who assumed that they meant school or public and that my skill set was reading, you know, books to small children. But let me first, you know, bust down all of your preconceptions about library science is, you know, there's this master's of library and information science degree. And for a majority of jobs, that's the minimum requirement you know, you have to have a master's degree. And then there are library jobs that require two master's degree and a PhD. So I, you know, there, there's all kinds of, of librarians. So yes, there are school, there are public, there are, you know, university librarians, there are law, law school librarians, and then there's law firm librarians, and there's corporations. I actually worked as a librarian at QVC briefly, like that QVC, like Home Shopping mm. Network, you know, because... When I when I I used to speak more frequently with library school students when I was still a librarian myself, and what I used to say to them, which was you know considered a controversial thing to say, by some people's standards, I would say to the, these students, I'd say you know, a master's of library and information science degree doesn't automatically make you a librarian, because in the U.S. and this isn't the same for other countries, but in the U.S. there's no official professional designation to be a librarian. There's no uh, there's no certification. There's no, you know, you can have your master's of library and science degree, but that doesn't necessarily make you a librarian. And this is when I do my really badly amnesia impersonation. I tell them it gives you a particular set of skills. <laughs> and that's what the degree does. So if you choose to be a librarian with that grade, there's actually a lot of people in marketing who have an MLIS degree. I've met a lot of people in marketing who have that degree. So I know that the the Fed you know, like the Federal Reserve, I know that there's librarians there, you know, who work on on things a lot of, you know, like if you want to do his you know, historical research of finance and things like that, you know, you're going to need a librarian who knows how to find things. So that's kind of start there. So there's all kinds of different librarians 
I wound up, I most, I worked mostly in law firms. I did do a little bit in corporate and a little bit of, of university. So what else? So it's very customer centric. So in my empathy as a service talk, one of my early slides, I prep people for a controversial topic I'm going to drop on them. And I say to them, you know, information security is a service industry job and gasp, clutch pearls. What do I mean by that? You know, we are serving a client and it's, it doesn't mean that we're subservient. It's just that mean we're in a service job. So that's why you need to get rid of that chip on your shoulder and that attitude that you're better than someone or the users are stupid because they don't know things. No, our job is to service their security needs. And sure, you know, every you want to vent and things like that. But you know, if you have that attitude, then the the users are going to know that you have you know disdain or contempt for them, and that'll come out in your emails, you know, or your nonverbal communication and things like that. So that's one of the things that was driven home to us in library school was you know we need to be approachable, which is the you know, one of the the steps of the reference interview is you need to be approachable, you know, because, you know, if you want to just look at it in black and white of basically they're paying your salary in a way you know, to look at it. And no, that doesn't give them the right to treat you poorly, but, you know, you need to make yourself available and approachable to them. And a lot can happen with nonverbal communication and verbal communication and written communication that could be off-putting, you know, like, having stupid users as your mantra. And you need to have interest. You know, another step of this is interest. You need to be interested in solving uh, the problem and listening skills. That's another one. And listening without judgment. Let me give you an example, if I may. I went on, when I was job hunting as a librarian at one point, I went for a job interview at a Catholic seminary. You know, I thought the job was very interesting. You know, so I, I went and one of the questions I was quizzed with was say, you know, a patron comes in and is talking to you about how he thinks that it's wrong to, you know, to prosecute priests who have been involved in immoral and illegal activities. Never asking you a question, just, you know, spitting these ideas at you. And then it was, I was like, oh boy, okay. And then the question was, so what do you do? And with my, I summoned all of my library training and said, hmm. well, I would direct the, it was, it was said it was a gentleman in this scenario. I'm sure it could have been a woman too, but the scenario they gave me was a gentleman. So I said, I would walk the gentleman over to one of the, you know, the more, you know, the, one of the private terminals. And I would pull up some information. I would say, would you like to read more about your point of view on here? I don't agree with his point of view. But that's not my job as a librarian to, you know, to limit that. So, I mean, that that's a big bone of contention in, in library world, you know, is that you don't cast judgment on people. And that's a rough one because that can, you know, that can that can cut kind of kind of deep. But it's it's I use that just as an example. So then the funny part, there is a funny part to this. So after I gave my answer of how I would just basically like you know, the, the crude answer is I would get the person out of my face <laughs> and give, <laughs> give them some material that they would agree with so then they would be content because that's what you're doing is you're servicing their need. That's what their need was. And after I gave my answer, the director of the library leaned forward and looked pointedly at someone at the table and said, why, why couldn't you thought of that? And I was like, oh, shoot, did I just get someone in trouble? Yikes. Yep. <laughs> So because apparently this person argued with them and I'm like, 
that's not what was hammered into my head in library school. So I know this, that's not a great topic as an example, but that is a true story of what I was, I was faced with. And, you know, that's basically, you know, how I correlate this is to people falling for phishing emails. We can look at it as professionals and see with flashing red flags of what, why this looks like a phishing email. Right. But you can't judge someone for thinking that it was real. That's not your, that's not your job. You know, you can think it, <laughs> you know, you can think, boy, like this could, this couldn't look any more obvious to, you know, but you, you know, that's not, that's not your job. Your, your duty is to walk them through showing them what were the red flags were, you know, tips, you know, and also finding out, you know, what damage they did. That's your job. So that's, those are the things I pull over from library science. And then also just organization information. You know, and I, I mean more than just alphabetical, but, you know, you need to group information together so that the users can find it. There was a trend on Twitter the other day of people were taking pictures of their bookshelves and a lot of people had books arranged solely by by color of the of the jackets. Right. And that gave me that. Yeah, that gave me like mini strokes. <laughs> I saw it. <laughs> But again, I didn't, you know, I I didn't dismiss them publicly. I mean, I did kind of joke. You know, I, jo- I joked like on one or two of tweets. I was like, like, yeah, that's really like, I'm like, I, I have so many questions. You know, like so I wasn't putting them down, but I was like, I have so many questions. Ultimately, you know, so this and this, how this ties into cybersecurity is if you are going to put information out there to either your end user end users or even your fellow coworkers, you need to organize it in a way that people can find it. So let's let's get away from end users for a minute, but let's talk about your teammates. You know, if one of your teammates is messing up a lot and you keep saying, well, did you, you know, did you read the the playbook? Did you read the guides that we have? Well, if you're not, you know, organizing that information clearly for someone to find it, then what use is it? So much useless. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, within you know, being a, a law firm library, we had constraints of you know the Library of Congress system of classification, but most libraries also have what's called a ready reference area, where they pull the most often used books or the most you know the the most like kind of general research based you know your OSINT type of books, and pull them together rather than make people go hunting for all these things all the time. So, you know, that's another, so that's another way of organizing information is based on need. The, your main stacks are going to be Library of Congress or Dewey or depending on your library. But yeah, then you have a whole other section of, okay, well, this is what we see most often going out and this is what people ask for a lot. And, and then maybe it's just organized alphabetically by title so that it can be found in there. And I, I don't know if everyone else sees it, but in my mind's eye, I see this everywhere in cybersecurity. You know, we can't have all these tips and things and just have them all scattered about. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, it's pretty interesting that you're kind of talking about this. Actually, right before this uh, podcast episode, I was having a meeting with my team about organization. What what is something that you would recommend? I mean, it sounds like you've like kind of developed these great habits and learned (laughs) over the time and how to be organized. What, What did you think that would help like... Someone even with their bookshelf, what 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 kind of tips could I take away from uh, your expertise with uh, library science? Well, first, I want to give a tip that pertains more to work environment. 
because also I don't want to be seen as like the happy homemaker who's helped telling everyone about knit, <laughs> knitting and making <laughs> in their home libraries. I do have a professional skill set. Um, I, I recommend that your workplace, your work structure, agree on, you know, a taxonomy. An e- easier way to say that is a standard set of vocabulary of what things mean, how you're going to use them. Because, you know, there are some, let's take threat intelligence, for example. I've seen threat intelligence used so many different ways in the our industry. I've, I've used, I've seen people use threat intelligence when they really mean threat hunting. Because to me, threat hunting is something else. And it gets very confusing. So, you know, you can't control what's going on out in the world, but within your shop, you can have a taxonomy and have an understanding of what things mean. I mean, think about another way to say it, again, if you're more technical minded, think about like, it's kind of like an an SLA. You have an agreed structure of, of what's to be done with, you know, with response time or with a certain word vocabulary, et cetera. I think that's a good analogy. You know, it's something that you agree that they're set, you know, an SLA, you can look up and see what it is. There's no question there, right? Nobody ever argues over, oh, no, I think our SLA is 40 minutes. No, I think it's three and a half hours. Now, you know what your SLA is, and your SLA varies for different types of incidents, right? It varies for different things, um, depending on the severity level. So why not have the same methodology applied to, you know, to your organization of stuff? You know, maybe the things that are more rare, don't have them as the first thing that shows up <laughs> in a search. You know, maybe you have your ready reference of let's take the five or ten top incidents that we see in our sock or in our in our workplace, and let's have those playbooks always be, you know, at the top somewhere. You know, for someone to see. Let's have the let you know. Because have you tried just you know going through was it Teams or what are some of those other products? I'm not, and I'm not disparaging the. The programs, but it's just people kind of just throw things in at will, and then no one ever organizes it. Especially like a Google Drive or something could just yes. kind of get very disorganized yeah. quickly. Very yes. quickly. So yeah, you need to have your ready reference, and you need you need to un- be in agreement what things what things mean and how things should look. I I don't think I'm giving anyway state secrets or anything, but there was something on my team that I encouraged us to all date an initial to give context. Like, you know, well, when did someone look at this? And actually that didn't even come from library world. That came from travel agent world. Because whenever (laughs) we had to uh, look at a travel reservation, if we touched that, that reservation, we had to date and put our sign, you know, our, our agent sign in there. And it needs to read like a story when somebody came up and they, you know, if somebody calls and they need to change their hotel reservation, you have to document what all happened and stuff. And then the next person pulls it up and then they can read it. So I noticed there was something that we were doing that there were comments, but there weren't, I felt like there was, there was context missing. I'm like, well, I want to know when this comment was made. And I, we did this a lot in the law firm library too. And I instituted that, you know, a book record, you know, you'd pull up a, a record for a book and it would say something like, you know, expires March well, Mar- what, which March, <laughs> you know, when did, when was this note made? Which March was it? No, you know, who made this things like that. So 
that's also, now I know that there are some programs that do that automatically. Obviously I know that, but for any notation that doesn't capture that, I would recommend that teams start doing that. If there's something you use that doesn't provide some sort of timestamp and author to the comment, you need to write that down because you need context of when was something made? Was this made two months ago and doesn't really apply anymore? Or was this made this morning, <laughs> you know, right. by, by Jill and it, it needs to pay attention. So again, that's another, you know, organization skill. And then I'll answer your bookshelf question <laughs> as well. Yeah. I also joke that I'm organized for pay. You know, <laughs> you know I, my own shelves aren't in any sort of library order. They're, Gasp. they're in or Well, see, that's what I'm saying, though. That's like an unfair stereotype. Again, remember, it's about, you know, it's about usability. They're in the order of how I'm going to use them the most. It would be great. to, Yes, it would be great to have them organized. But again, after I did library stuff all day long, I really didn't want to come home and, you know, and do my own bookshelf. But, you know, usability is the factor here. And again, this this, how, how hard does this correlate to information security? We want security to be usable and not get in, in the way of anyone. You know, it depends on how important is it to you? Like, do you, is it because you want to know, like, how many books you have? You know, what, like, I guess it's what your end goal is. You know, is it that you want to show it off to someone? There's all kinds of great free apps and things where you can just scan the barcode on a book and it'll just upload all the information and you can have that there so you can know like what's all in your collection and stuff. One time I did a project where there's this attorney had his office and the office next to him filled with all of his books. He had so many books he didn't like, he didn't even know what he had. Yeah. It was ridiculous. It, it was getting, and one of my jobs at the law firm was purchasing books. And he would ask me all the time to purchase these books. And I'm like, I know you probably have this already, but you don't know it. So what I did now, I know it might sound, you know, out of character, but the, so what I did was I did an inventory of all of his books, but because there were so many and it really wasn't my job to do an inventory of his books, <laughs> But I got special permission to go work on his books. And all I did was an inventory. And my notations were where they were when I inventoried it. And I made a spreadsheet and I, you know, labeled everything. So what would happen then after that is if he asked to purchase something, I would go to the spreadsheet, I would search for it. And if I found that he already had it, I would give him the, you know, the, the directions, of where it was. I'd be like, okay, so in my notes, it would be, you know, B7. So I'd be like, okay, Steve, this is, you know, you see the the bookshelf that I have the sticky note that says the letter B on it, you know, and he's like, yes, like, okay, it's on the second shelf in the, you know, and like I had that down. And eventually he called onto the system and did it and was more self-sufficient. So yes, that was not in any like official classification order, but time was an issue. And usability was an issue. So I made it usable by devising this Excel system, basically. <laughs> and and that worked. So, you know, the bottom line is, is, you know, you you make you make a collection that works for your your use. You know, That's books good that to you hear. Yeah, yeah. No, there's no there's no shame in having <laughs> I, I have I'm a not gonna reorganize catalog. my bookshelf now. <laughs> I mean, but if you want to, if that brings you joy, then do it. But if you have, say you have a bunch of books that you're like, you know what, 
I bought these books years ago and I've never read them. Maybe you put those more at eye level. Like maybe you go through and cherry pick them and be like, okay, this shelf is going to be stuff that I want to work through because I'll see it all the time and that'll bug me and that'll plant something in my brain. Books that maybe you've read and have no interest in rereading but just want to hold on to for sentimental value. Maybe you put those on the bottom shelf. So that's why I don't, I don't throw shade on the, the like I said, the, the color scheme, the reason why that bothered me was, is bec- I guess just because I was kind of burned as a law librarian. Mm-hmm. The, there's a lot of books in law that are referred to by color, but there are multiple books of multiple colors. So there's, you know, a thing called a blue book. And I don't mean like the Kelly blue book. Cause then, cause some people hear blue book and they think the cars, well, the blue book is a uh, is a citation uh, book if for law, how to make legal citations, you know. But then there's also New York State has a lot of law books that go that go by color and things like that. So for me, just with my law firm experience, I was like, yeah, the color of the book means nothing <laughs> to me and can change every year. And also, if it's a book jacket, the book jacket color can be different from the actual spine on the book. So I'm thinking, well. What if you only saw the book with the jacket on and then you saw it with it off? Would you still know what that book was and things like that? So that's why the color scheme, I was like, oh, that brings me back bad memories of <laughs> getting phone calls from lawyers going, I need the purple book. And I'm like, I need you <laughs> when, to narrow that down. <laughs> when I was doing a lot of interviewing for different threat intelligence roles, one of the main questions my prospective employers would ask is, what are your favorite threat intelligence feeds? And one of my favorite answers that I would quite often give is Twitter. Twitter mm. is great for doing threat research. Absolutely. You are very active and an awesome Twitter user. And you've actually done some talks in the past about using Twitter as like a research tool. What mm-hmm. is your favorite piece of advice for folks that are doing research or they're doing threat intelligence to actually use Twitter as a tool? Oh, get to know Twitter lists. P- lists, mm, L-I-S-T-S. Twitter, thank you. You know what they are. Okay. There's so many people who don't use Twitter lists, and it's really crucial. And I'll go ahead and explain for the audience. You don't know that. So a Twitter list is where it's basically like a file folder, you know, or you know, a folder on your desktop. You, you don't have to follow people. You can just add them to a list. So say you want a list of just, you know, European newspapers. You can make a list, you know, talking about OSINT stuff. You can make a Twitter list and call it European newspapers. And then you can just add all these people to the list. So then when you're ready to look at just European newsletter, newspapers, you can summon that list and click on it and, you know, not get a lot of the extra tweets from your, if, if you were trying to look at it in your main timeline. So Twister ver- lists are very useful. I'll tell my, my OSINT story in a second of how lists were so, were so useful and how, how Twitter was useful. But the one thing that I, I want to make sure that people are aware of is that there's private and public lists. If you're trying to be a sneaky Pete and do threat intelligence, I highly recommend that you mark your lists as private because otherwise the person you add to the list gets a notification that they've been added to a list. And if you have a private list and then you make it public and then you make it private again, the minute you make it public, a list, a, a, a notification generates, no matter how long ago 
you created the list. And I've tested this a bunch of times and it, it, it definitely, you know, does, does happen. So lists are a good way to organize information, to keep your, your, your main feed clear of, you know, the things that you want to see all the time. And then it also just helps you organize it out by, by, you know, by specific subject. Now you can also follow other people's lists if they've made them public. And unfortunately you can't search in Twitter anymore of what lists are out there. They took away that feature years ago. But if you go, if you do a Google dork and I have like slides about all this and everything, but you can do a Google dork and find existing lists to follow because somebody may already have one that's interesting and they've already done the work for you. So that's also usually the first place to look is, has someone already done this? Uh, but again, keep OPSEC in mind. If you don't want to, people to know that you're following their list, then create your own. But the the OSINT gold story that I wanted to share was when I was, the time period between me leaving my library job and starting in InfoSec professionally, I was a freelance researcher. I did social media management and research. And this one company, who shall not be named, wanted me to do research on a competitor, but they didn't want me to spend any money to actually pull information. They were going to pay me for my time. But if you've ever done any freelance work, that probably sounds familiar of, <laughs> you know, you can't, <laughs> you can't spend any money on any resources. So I, I was doing it, you know, I was finding some, oh, they wanted me to find specifically who their competitors' clients were but not, you know, because, you know, you can buy marketing lists and things like that. But like, no, 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 we want you to find it without any of that. I'm like, all right. So just as I was about to give up, not really finding anything on a lark, I went to the Target's uh, list page because you can go to someone's handle and see what lists they have, again, provided they're marked public. Well, 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 what did I find? The Target company had all these lists set up one was called clients, one was called future clients, one was called like potential clients, one was called wow. party, something about like party invitations, because I think it was approaching Hacker Summer Camp in Las Vegas. So it was like something about party, something or other. So I was like, ding, 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 here we go. So I I did screen caps, but I also... You know, I had I saved the list, the URLs, but in the event they somebody wised up and made them private, I did also, you know, capture the information other ways. And again, I was about to give up. I was like racking my brain of like, what's another way to try and find? So I, and I, you know, there are clients, and I remember thinking to myself like, they're not dumb enough just to have it out in a Twitter list, are they? <laughs> and <laughs> lo and behold, they were. Wow. So yeah, and I look like a I look like a rock star. I handed this over to the my client, and they were like, "Oh my god, you're a genius!" Gold. <laughs> yeah, that is, yeah. That is so amazing. <laughs> Such an awesome piece of advice, Tracy. Thank you so much for being on the show from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you for being here, taking your very valuable time and spending it with us. For those of out there that want to be in touch with you, stay abreast of the things that you have going on in your life, what are some ways that people can stay in contact with you? Well, the number one way is Twitter, I guess. Follow me at InfoSec Sherpa. I do have a Nuzzle newsletter, speaking of threat intelligence, that I do every day, most days, daily-ish. <laughs> the weekends are usually touch and go, but daily I'm, I'm pretty solid at. It's N-U-Z-Z-E-L. Dot com and you can search for me as InfoSec Sherpa. And it's a roundup of about 10 
news items that have maybe gone a little bit under the radar. And I cover information security and privacy. Um, just think, I, I try not to cover stories that you've seen 8 million other places. Uh, and I've gotten a lot of great feedback from people telling me that they've seen items from my newsletter that they haven't really seen elsewhere, but that were crucial to their, their work. So yeah, follow me on Twitter. Look for me on Nuzzle and U-Z-Z-E-L InfoSec Sherpa. Fantastic. Thanks again. And we'll see everybody next time.